Let's turn to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We read from 1 Corinthians 6, the verses 9 to 20. And our text is the verses 12 to 20. Paul has been addressing the Corinthian congregation on different struggles and sins in their midst. We take up our reading at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our Western culture today, people have a real love-hate relationship with their bodies. On the one hand, we see people placing a ridiculously high value on their appearance. People want to look good. They'll go to great lengths to present themselves in the best possible light. Thus, we see a widespread obsession with diets, exercise, bodybuilding, cosmetics, stylish clothing, plastic surgery, Botox treatments, and so on. Social media is full of photoshopped images of people 
that set unrealistic standards for physical beauty. Popular models have hundreds of thousands or even millions of followers on Instagram and other social media accounts. Yet being obsessed by the body does not mean that we love it or accept it or value it. The focus on looking young and beautiful, the worship of the airbrushed, media-produced glamour shots hides a hatred of our real bodies. An obsession with exercising and dieting shows that people objectify the body as something to be used and controlled instead of valuing it for its own sake. We live in a day and age where when most people look in the mirror, they hate what they see. Our culture has lost Christianity's wholesome perspective on human life. People separate personhood from human life. We see that in many of the issues that confront us today. The body that grows in his mother's womb is not considered to be a person unless the mother decides to have a baby. Someone suffering from dementia is no longer considered a person, and society deems it acceptable to end her life. This also applies to our sexuality. Since society views the body as separate from the person, what you do with your body sexually need not have any connection with who you are. In the hookup culture of our day, sex is considered purely physical, separate from love. Transgender people often claim to be trapped in the wrong body. As Christians, our thinking can easily be affected by the culture in which we live. We can start to take on the attitudes and the perspectives of those around us. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time examining who we are. What does it mean to be human? Or to ask the question another way, what makes you into a person? Is it your personality, your life force, your thinking that makes you a human being? Can you be a human being without a body? From the Bible's perspective, how are we to look at our bodies? Does this have any effect on our morality? Does it affect our viewpoint on issues like abortion, euthanasia, sexuality, and gender? I'd like to summarize the gospel message for you this morning under the following theme. Paul urges us to glorify God with our bodies. We'll see how Paul exposes society's wrong views on our bodies, explains how we are to view our bodies, and exhorts us to glorify God with our bodies. 
In the time when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthian society, he had a different perspective on life than we do as 21st century Christians. The Iranian prophet Mani developed a religion which spread throughout much of the world and was the main rival of Christianity before the spread of Islam. Manichaeism sees life as a struggle between the good spiritual world of light and the evil material world of darkness. Please note that the material world that includes our bodies was viewed in a negative light. Closely associated with this is Gnosticism. It promoted the idea that all matter is evil, that the spiritual realm is good. According to this belief, the essential part of what makes us human is the divine spark, which according to them was trapped in a human body. Gnostics believe that our mortal bodies belong to the inferior material world, that only our spirits could be saved. Thus, your average person living in Paul's day saw the body as a total other to the self. It was a piece of matter that the soul had to struggle to control and to manage. The goal of salvation was to escape the material world, to leave it behind and to ascend into a spiritual realm. This led to a number of extremes in how people live their lives. The one extreme is what we would call asceticism. People would abstain from bodily pleasures for the purpose of pursuing a spiritual goal. They'd live frugal lives, getting rid of their material possessions so they could focus on their spiritual quest. They'd deny themselves food and re- refrain from engaging in sex even if they were married. Paul addresses this issue in Colossians 2, where he summarizes the teaching of such people as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul says that this teaching has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But he said that it had no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's also another extreme to seeing the world as evil and unimportant. We see that coming through in our text in the verses 12 and 13. In these verses, Paul quotes two slogans that believers in the church of Corinth used to explain their sinful lifestyle. A slogan is a short saying that summarizes what we believe about a certain matter. A lot of people in our society live by slogans. If it feels good, do it. Or it's all right as long as no one gets hurt. Similarly, in Paul's day, people lived by these two slogans. All things are lawful for me. And food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The saying, all things are lawful for me, may be something that the church derived from Paul's teachings. He had to oppose the legalistic teaching of the Judaizers, who said it was necessary for Gentile Christians to be circumcised 
and to obey the food laws of the Old Testament. Paul opposed that teaching, stressing our freedom in Christ. But it appears that the Corinthian believers took that statement too far. They applied it to life in the wrong way. Some of them have adopted the attitude, we're free in Christ. All things are lawful for us. It doesn't really matter how we live in our mortal bodies. They applied that to their sexuality. They thought that they were free to engage in sex with temple prostitutes. This attitude comes even comes out even more directly in the second slogan that they promoted. They said food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now with this slogan, they were not trying to defend their eating habits. Their reasoning went as follows. Since food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, and since all bodily appetites are pretty much alike, it means the body is for sex and sex is for the body. They figured that sexual acts are merely gratifying a bodily appetite, nothing more. And in this way, the Corinthians justified their participation in the sexual immorality of their city. Now to us, this seems like a really weak argument, a grasping at straws. We can hardly believe that the Corinthian believers were serious in presenting this as an, as an excuse for their immorality. But we need to understand that there was something else that influenced their perspectives on sexuality. They did not look at their bodies in the same way as we do today. In the time of the Greeks, people made a profound distinction between the body and the soul. The soul was all-important. It was pure. It was eternal. The body was a mere vessel in which your soul lived. The body was considered evil. It was unimportant because it was just going to die and turn back to dust anyway. This dualism perverted the Corinthians' perspective on their bodies. The body was just a suitcase in which the soul lived. They couldn't see the big deal of keeping their bodies pure and holy. In Christ, we're free from our sins. When we die, our soul is going to go up and be with Him. Our bodies are just temporary homes for our souls. So really, what's so wrong with visiting a prostitute? The Corinthians' negative perspective on their bodies as evil and unimportant opened the way for them to think. It didn't matter what they did with their bodies. Many in our society today have a similar attitude toward their bodies. Their personhood is found in their personality, their intellect, their thinking. Having a human body does not qualify you for life. We see this in the abortion debate. It used to be that those in favor of abortion denied that a pre-born baby is human. They said it's just a blob of tissue, a collection of cells. 
Yet imaging technology has shown that within eight weeks of conception, a baby has a beating heart. That by the end of the third month, a baby is fully formed. Most abortion advocates will admit this is true. So why isn't this taken as conclusive proof that abortion is wrong? That it is the taking of a human life? Those who recognize what they call the fetus as biologically human do not necessarily conclude that it has a moral standing or that it should be legally protected. In their worldview, being a member of the human race is not enough to qualify for personhood. According to them, the baby in the womb has to earn the status of personhood by achieving a certain level of cognitive functioning. The baby needs to have a capacity for consciousness, self-awareness, and autonomy. To us as Christians, this makes no sense. Yet our culture makes a distinction between being a human being and being a worthwhile person. We see that argument come into focus in the debates about euthanasia. Many countries in the Western world, including Canada, have passed doctor-assisted suicide laws. It's because people don't see any real value in human life. The attitude is, if someone has dementia, they're not a real person anymore. You may as well put them to sleep. There is a separation between your personality, your intellect, what makes you, you, and what people see as your physical existence. When it comes down to it, our society has a very negative perspective on the human body. It's unimportant, except as a means of sustaining life. Society's negative view on our bodies comes through in its approach to sexuality. Since your body is separate from who you are as a person, what you do with your body need not have any connection with who you are as a whole person. Thus, in this world, people consider that sex can be purely physical, separate from love. In our hookup culture, partners are referred to as friends with benefits. But that's just a cover for what really happens. People who hook up are not really friends. They never meet just to talk or to spend time together. They just get together for sex. In our text, Paul combats the Corinthians' wrong perspectives. The Corinthians are saying, all things are lawful for me. Paul suggests that while certain things are lawful, not all things are helpful. While the Corinthians thought that their sexual sins didn't matter, because they just involved their evil bodies, Paul teaches that they were dead wrong. No sin that a person commits has more harmful effects than sexual sin. It's broken apart many marriages and shattered many homes. Paul's second point is that sexual sins hold a lot more power in the Corinthian believers' lives than they imagined. 
He said, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Sin, beloved, has a certain addictive quality. We may think that we're in control when we engage in certain sins, but often that's not true. The sin controls us. We're under its dominion. Satan has used the desires of the flesh to gain mastery over us. Think about the power of pornography in the lives of many today. It rewires the brains of those who indulge in it. Because we're pleasure-seeking people, sexual sins can easily take over in our lives. Sin enslaves people. We keep looking to have our desires gratified. We never find what we're really looking for. At some level, people in our society know this. While people want to separate sex from feelings, they cannot. In verses 15 and 16 of our text, Paul makes clear that sex involves more than just a bodily interaction. He asks, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two become one flesh. When people have sex together, they're joined on more than just a physical level. Sex involves sharing who you are also on an emotional and a spiritual level. In our society, a lot of work has been done on trauma that children experience when they're sexually assaulted. Even the secular literature calls such abuse soul-destroying. The trauma that children and young people experience often has lifelong consequences. So we see the body is not unimportant. What you do with it is not without consequences. This brings us to our second point. And we'll see how Paul explains how we are to view our bodies. To understand who we are, we need to go back to creation. Genesis 1 tells us something important about who we are. It says that God created man in his own image. This doesn't mean that we physically look like God. For God himself is spirit. He doesn't have a material being. Being created in God's image means that we reflect who he is. Just as God is good and righteous and holy, so he created man good and righteous and holy. We were created as moral beings, knowing the difference between right and wrong. We're called to live our lives to God's glory. We also read together from Genesis 2 about how precisely God created man. It says, The Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This text tells us something really important about who we are. God created us with bodies 
and souls. God didn't have to do that. God could have made us like the angels, as spirits without bodies. He could have created a spiritual realm for man to float around in. But God created us with material bodies. He gave us a material world to live in. The interesting thing is that when God evaluated his creative work, he said that it was very good. Our bodies are not intrinsically evil. They're not something to be despised or hated. You see, beloved, we were created as whole people. God created us with a body and a soul. He created us with purpose. God gave us eyes to see. He created us with ears so we can hear. He gave birds wings so they could fly. He gave fish fins so they could swim. These things show God made us in a specific manner so we could accomplish the purpose and goal for which he made us. And what is that purpose? Well, unlike the other creatures, God created us with a mind. So we might have a true and wholesome knowledge of God, our creator, and of all spiritual things. God created us with affections. So we might love him and live in unity with him. God created man with a free will. So we have the ability to choose for God and to live our lives to his glory. We are created with a body and soul to live in this material world, loving God and serving Him by ruling over the rest of creation. We know that mankind fell into sin and brought God's curse upon ourselves and on this world. Man's human nature became corrupt. By nature, we're inclined to sin and evil. The world itself was subjected to futility. Part of God's curse on our sin was that the world brought forth thorns and thistles, that man would have to work in the sweat of his brow, that the woman would have pain in childbirth. We're confronted with many of the effects of sin, with natural disasters, with sickness and pain, and ultimately death. Yeah, beloved, while the fall into sin had a massive effect on how we live, it did not change our humanity. We are still created with a body and a soul. There is a wholeness to our being. We still image God. Scripture teaches us about the close unity of body and soul. In Psalm 63, David says to God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. What David is expressing is that he longs for God with his whole being, body and soul. This idea that we are whole people is confirmed by everyday experience. When you eat food, you don't say, my mouth is eating. 
You say, I'm eating. You can't separate body from soul. Your material being affects you emotionally and spiritually. Now, to overcome the effects of the fall into sin, God needed to redeem us. And he did so in a very special way. God sent his son, who like him was a spiritual being, into this world. God did so in a very specific manner. Jesus came in human flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary as a real, living human being. Christ's coming in human flesh was a physical event happening at a particular time in a particular geographical location. As John writes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the days of the early church, this was one of Christianity's greatest scandals. In Manichaeism and Gnosticism, the highest gods would have nothing to do with the material world. And yet the gospel says that the immortal and invisible God has broken into history as a baby boy born in Bethlehem. The apostles stressed Christ's body, that in him all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, that he bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When Jesus was sacrificed on a cross, we might say that he escaped from this material world. That's what many of the philosophers and teachers of Paul's day taught the people they would do. But what happened? Jesus came back in a bodily resurrection. This was stunning to the Greek philosophers. They thought that as a man progressed from this life to the next, he would leave behind his evil, material body. But Christ rose from the dead as a human being. And when he ascended into heaven, he did so with a glorified human body. In verse 14 of our text, Paul writes, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. When we die, we know that our body is buried in the ground and our soul is taken up into heaven. But that's not the end of the story. The Bible makes it clear that on the final day, our bodies will be raised from the dead, reunited with our souls, that we will live with God on new heavens and a new earth. Just as Christ's human nature is permanently united to his divine nature, so we also will exist forevermore as people with a body 
and a soul. Job confessed that just before he thought he was going to die. He said, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Beloved, we should not buy into our culture's mentality that the body is evil, or that what you do with your body is unimportant. God created us as material beings. We're not just created with a spirit or soul. We're created with a body and a soul. God made us male and female in his image. While it's true that sin has distorted who we are, part of being human is having a physical body. We may experience much brokenness in the sinful world. Yet our core identity involves having both a body and a soul. You cannot separate personhood from your humanity. You don't earn the status of being a person by achieving a certain level of cognitive functioning. A baby in the womb and a senior with severe dementia are real people, even if they're not self-aware or they don't have the ability to take care of themselves. And beloved, what we do with our bodies is also important. No, we're not to worship our bodies. Society's obsession with body image is wrong. Yet we are to be good stewards of our bodies. To take care of them. By eating nutritious food. By getting exercise and regular sleep. And further, we need to recognize that we can use our bodies to sin. Or we can use them as instruments of righteousness. We'll deal with that in our final point, And we'll see how Paul exhorts us to glorify God with our bodies. The Corinthians thought that since the body was evil, that it was subject to death and decay. It didn't matter what you did with it. People today think they can hook up for sex without any consequences on who they are as people. Paul opposes this in verse 18 of our text. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The point, beloved, is not that sexual sins are worse than other sins. Yet sexual sins affect us very personally. Sex involves our whole person, body and soul. Sex with someone else binds you together in an intimate way. Not only can it give much pleasure, it also gives us feelings of being connected and of being loved. The Bible teaches a beautiful message about our sexuality the most complete and intimate physical union of a man and woman is meant to express the most complete and intimate union of marriage. 
The purpose of sex is to express the one flesh covenant, bond of marriage. People can and do have sex outside of marriage all the time. But to stop from getting hurt, they need to divorce their physical union from any emotional or spiritual bond. Engaging in that kind of sex is participating in the I hate my body cult of modern society. Paul concludes our text by reminding us of who we are in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you're bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Christ has a unique claim on our lives. He says we were bought with a price. Formerly, we were under dominion of Satan and of our own sinful flesh. But Christ has redeemed us. He paid the price to set us free from our sins. He did so by entering this world as a real human being. By offering his body and blood for us on the cross. Christ's claim on us is strengthened by the fact that he has sent his spirit to live in us. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people by dwelling in the tabernacle and later the temple. Yet with the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come to live in each of our hearts. As Paul says in our text, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the body is not just a suitcase that we temporarily inhabit on our way to everlasting life. Our bodies are holy ground. The Spirit sanctifies us. He makes us pure and holy in God's sight. We belong with body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We owe him a huge debt of gratitude for redeeming us from our sins, for making us righteous and holy in his sight. Do you know how God wants us to show forth our thankfulness? Paul tells us plainly. He says, glorify God in your body. To do that, beloved, we need to love our bodies. We may not always like what we see when we look in the mirror. We may experience much brokenness in this fallen world. Yet each one of us needs to accept that I am a unique person created in the image of God so I can live my life to God's glory. Beloved, you were created by God, redeemed by Christ, and you're being renewed by the Spirit so you can accomplish the purpose and goal of your life. It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Do you ever stop to consider your perspective on who you are? Do you sometimes pause in the busyness of life to think about why you do the things that you do? God is at work in us 
so that instead of using our bodies as instruments of sin, we might offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him. The final purpose and goal of our lives is to glorify God. By His grace and Spirit, He will enable us to do that in this life and perfectly in the life to come. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from hymn 64.